Hey, happy Friday. It's uh, this morning. It's the 29th of May 2020, and this is the Kevin Prendeville Show. Hey, I'm looking at the forecast. This weekend's going to be great, and if the government allows it, you should, if you got a boat, go out on it. Uh, if the government allows you to, to uh, go for a bike ride, you definitely should. There are about a million summer things you could do, but again, I don't know the rules anymore. So don't come asking me. Maybe call uh, call the mayor of Nashville or call the governor. One of them can give you an answer. But we've got a, uh, a packed show today. We're going to touch, um, again, on some political issues. But more importantly, we are going to get to some business and finance. Hopefully, we can fit in a financial lesson at the end of the show today. And I know we're going to be able to learn some things and put this crazy year into perspective. I mean, isn't it insane? We're only five months in. I mean, it feels like so much has happened, enough for, you know, a full decade. But that hasn't stopped us from beginning with the opening salvo. Now, normally I would stay away from topics like this. I, in doing this show, have sculpted it to be able to touch on political subjects without diving deep into them because the purpose of the show is more about education than manipulation. The show is more about understanding topics rather than just ranting about them. But you can't ignore this. If you haven't seen it, there was a unfortunate situation in which a police officer knelt on the throat of a black man until he suffocated to death for nine whole minutes. Out of all of the videos that we've seen, out of all of the controversies that have come up for years around this issue, this is the worst one. In some other cases, there have been circumstances that have changed the way that we looked at prior incidents. There have been sometimes, in some cases, justification for police actions, but this is inexcusable. There were bystanders who did nothing. There were police, other police there, who did nothing while this man sat there and suffocated. And he had handcuffs on. It's not like he was struggling and trying to get away. Uh, he, he had submitted. He was ready to uh, get in the back of the squad car. And there's no reason that his crime, which was, we're not even sure if he committed, there's no reason that it should have resulted in death. The police officer was essentially acting as the judge, jury, and executioner here for a crime that wasn't all that severe. Not in terms of having this man sacrifice his life. Now, do I think it means that all cops are racist or that America is a racist country or has systemic racism or any of the words that you're bound to hear coming out of this? No, I don't. Do I think this cop is a racist? Maybe. Probably. He certainly has a god complex or a, a issue with power. 
it comes back to in the 70s they, they did this psychology exam where essentially they had these college students where half of the class pretended to be in prison for a week and the other half were the guards for the week and they actually ended up having to stop the examination because those who were in power in terms of being the guards would start to do things that were out of bounds or start to really live into that role and the study essentially concluded is that some people can't be trusted with power. Now, you need a functioning police force in order to carry out the laws of the land. I'm not saying that you know, we shouldn't have that. Or again, I don't think all cops are, are, are racist or, or evil people. But this guy certainly was. Because even if, let's say hypothetically, that he had to go on some sort of chase to bring this guy down or exert himself. That still wouldn't justify this actions, And the fact that he didn't, that there was nothing preceding this, is just all the more egregious, all the more heartbreaking, and all the more nonsensical. And I think you're seeing, which is really understated here, is you're seeing pretty much across the board, all Americans, no matter their political party or skin color, all Americans are really appalled by this. And, and we should be. And I'm glad we are. That being said, you know the politicization of this is is coming. You know there are going to be political actors who try to, to use this for their advantage. The old phrase comes up again, never let a good crisis go to waste. We just had 60 days worth of it with COVID. We're not dumb enough to think that this isn't going to be used. And it's sad. It really is. But again, this show is about education, not manipulation. And so what we're going to do is we're going to actually, I'm going to lay out what I believe could be some legislative changes to help fix this problem. Because one of the biggest issues that I saw coming out of this unfortunate happening was the fact that the cop was allowed to go free. Where... If this had been me or you, where we knelt on somebody's neck for 10 minutes and suffocated them to death in the middle of the street, you and I would have been thrown in jail and, and they would have put us under the jail and, and thrown away the key. So just because this guy has a uniform on doesn't mean that he's any better or worse than you or I. It's the same thing with, and I talked about it before, with, with uh, Catholics and the Pope, where the Pope is not any closer to God than you or I the cop is not more righteous than you or I unless, you know, we're breaking the law and he's working within the law to stop us. But this was completely out of bounds and it's very obviously out of bounds. And again, if a normal civilian did this, they would have been arrested in, in, in two seconds. But instead, you know, this guy goes free. For a couple days, they only just arrested him. And that was only because stuff was broken and, and riots were happening. Now, am I saying they would have never arrested him? No, but but why is there that time period where he's allowed to go free? You know where the guy is, especially if he's in your precinct. So I think there should be 
some legislation passed that basically says that if a if a police officer is suspected of committing a crime that they should be arrested like any other citizen. Now it's hard because especially in in small communities and sometimes in certain cities there can be a level of corruption because one hand washes the other. So the question is, how do we enforce this? And I don't think it can come down to an oversight board because these oversight boards can also be corrupt. Of course, you're dealing with humans, so nothing is ever going to be perfect. And that's not a slight against you or I. That's that's just how humans are. So no, it's not going to be perfect. But at the very least, perhaps you can hold the police chief accountable and say that if there's an investigation by, let's say, the FBI or some other organization, the Department of Justice, for instance, that determines that a cop should have been arrested after a suspected crime and wasn't, then the police chief could get fired, could be also uh, put that under, I'm not a lawyer here, but you could put that under some sort of criminal offense so maybe they get arrested, so there's ex- extra incentive for the head, of the, for the chief of police to actually police themselves, so that there's some incentive to get rid of the corruption internally because heads are going to roll. Because if you don't have those breaks, even if you write that into legislation, even if you put that into law, then there's still going to be, because one hand washes the other, you're still going to have a lot of the corruption where the the police officer isn't going to get arrested. So that's certainly one thing that I think we can change. On another, and I don't, again, I, I would be very much against an oversight board or another bureaucratic organization that's going to oversee the police force because of the potential for corruption and politicization of that board. You know, you don't want the police turning into like a, a KGB force. I'm not saying it'd be that extreme, but hey, it could happen. And so far, for, for maybe another solution is that there should be a, a regulation on once a subject is, or suspect, is in custody and in handcuffs, there should be a minimum amount of time between that act and them getting in the back of the squad car. And that seems small, but if you standardize that and then find it, and again, you make the rules harsh, at least in the beginning, so that there's internal policing of it. And I know it seems small, but it would have prevented this death specifically. And I'm sure it would prevent other bad actors from hurting suspects in the future. And again, I'm not somebody who's typically uh, uh, advocating to be soft on crime. I'm not anti-police. I'm not anti-cop. I think they have a hard job and, and have an important role in society to fill, and I'm happy they do that, but when something is as wrong as this is, it needs to get fixed. And I'm sorry we had to go with a somber route for the opening salvo, but I need to get that off my chest, and I'm so glad you're willing to listen. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk about 
Trump, China, and Hong Kong, where the U.S. is finally taking a stand against the injustices that the Chinese have tried to push as they make inroads into Hong Kong, and how we see it playing out. This is very important when it comes to personal finance. Well, as has been a continuing series on this show, I suppose, has been Trump and his stance on China, which I'm sure, as you know, I absolutely love. It's been it's so refreshing to have a president realize who our enemies are. And again, if you're not smart enough to understand that there's a difference between somebody's race and the government that occupies that country, I'm not so sure I can help you. But the enemy here is communism. The enemy is not people who are Chinese because, well, a lot of the people, especially over here in the U.S., will freely talk about how much they hate the Chinese government. And I'm talking about people that are from there. And it's like when I have a friend uh, who lives down in Miami, and his uh, his parents are from Cuba, and I've never met anyone more anti-communist than he is. I mean, he hates the Cuban government. Doesn't mean he hates the Cuban people. Doesn't mean I hate the Cuban people, and I hate the Cuban government. It's, it's the same thing. We didn't hate Russians. We hated the communist regime in Russia that murdered 26 million people at least through starvation and gulags and what have you. And who knows how many people the Chinese have murdered at this time. I mean, we've estimated under Mao Zedong it was about 50 million people. It's a lot of people. But who really knows? And, of course, they've supported, as we've talked about, they've supported murderous regimes all over the world. They they have supported genocides in Darfur. They have messed with our elections. They have committed intellectual fraud. They have committed theft. They have attempted to support propaganda stations in the United States in order to try and soften our stance against them. We've been over this. But now it seems, especially with Hong Kong, that we are finally doing something about it. So Hong Kong used to be a colony of the, of the United Kingdom, and it was for a very long time, really since about late, late in the Industrial Revolution, right around the Opium Wars, and throughout recent history, it really has been more of a westernized Chinese country because of the English influence, much like South Africa, where it technically is... African, an African city, but it's very westernized. It looks a lot like a western city because you have the Dutch influence and the English influence. Same thing in Hong Kong. But in 1997, the British uh, gave up that colony in a continued period of decolonization that started after World War II, where the British said, okay, we'll relinquish control of Hong Kong, but you have to promise that and they said this to the Chinese, essentially, in the treaty, you have to promise that it would be one country, two systems, so that Hong Kong would be able to keep a lot of the freedoms, in fact, pretty much all of the freedoms, that they had enjoyed under the United Kingdom. And the U.S., and this is the great thing, actually, that uh, Bill Clinton did, of the things that I don't necessarily support him on, this was one of them, where... We helped inject a lot of money into the Hong Kong economy, 
And essentially, this helped turn it into a financial hub. And it was already most of the way there because it was a way for English companies to make inroads into the Chinese market. Same thing for U.S. companies without necessarily having having to kowtow to the Chinese government. So over the years, Hong Kong has grown into this financial hub independent of China. And if you ever want a good comparison of uh, communism versus capitalism, just look at the two countries. I mean, China built these huge ghost towns, these huge towns on this farmland that the farmers can't even afford to live in. And Hong Kong has been very prosperous now for two, three decades. And Hong Kong wants it. I'm sorry, China wants it. And so over these past couple of years, they started to put in a couple laws here and there that started infringing on it, almost like if somebody was in a boiling pot of water and you slowly turn the heat up, would they really notice it? Well, they overstepped their boundaries. Before COVID was unfortunately released on the world, uh, Hong Kong, you'll remember the Hong Kong protests. Well, that was over the fact that if somebody committed a crime in Hong Kong, they could be tried by the Chinese government, which meant that potentially political prisoners could be had in Hong Kong, which means that they could maybe change the government or start to change the elected government in Hong Kong to make it much more favorable to the Chinese and begin a slow process of annexation. The Hong Kong people aren't stupid, so you had these huge protests going on, and then you had the riot police coming in. And after the, the dust settled from COVID, China resumed their, their attacks. Most recently, they have arrested several uh, pro-democratic uh, activists in the Hong Kong government, again, in an attempt to sway elections, change the government, and eventually annex the city as one. Now, in my view, Hong Kong should be a free city or its own state, where the Hong Kong government should have total autonomy and Hong Kong should, be its own, should have its own representation. But that's probably not going to happen, at least not with this Chinese regime. And so Trump has now announced that essentially we're revising our travel uh, advisory to say that, you know, if U.S. citizens are over there, there's a likely chance that you'll be arrested, which is true, and could be uh, could essentially face um, persecution by the Chinese. And of course, that is true. But in addition to that, Trump is also going to be cutting funding uh, and all ties to the WHO, the World Health Organization, which again is owned by the Chinese, not necessarily even funded by the Chinese, mostly funded with American dollars. Again, the WHO has said that this virus could not be spread person to person. It obviously can be, and they essentially ignore Chinese health risks, violations, and refuse to investigate China. Now, in addition, Trump is going to be going after companies that we talked about, which are essentially these shell companies that the Chinese create, put on the U.S. stock exchange, and then basically take investor dollars and send them over to China. That's never been investigated, or not at least to have the U.S. do anything about it. And that's going to uh, change, uh, Trump said, and this comes to us from Fox Business, that this is a tragedy for the people of Hong Kong, the people of China, and the people of the world, essentially talking about the coronavirus mistakes here, but also that 
China has, and talking about Hong Kong, China has replaced its promised formula of one country, two systems, with one country, one system. And that is absolutely true. Now, what, what does that mean for investment? What does that mean for prices? What does that mean for you personally? Well, again, this is going to, with the announcement of more sanctions potentially, this is going to have more U.S. companies pulling out of China when countries pull out of countries, when companies, excuse me, pull out of China and move to places like, again, Vietnam, Indonesia, India, I would expect to see a potential uh, a potential drop in stock prices. And this is because profits are going to drop, not only because of COVID-19, but because if you have to cover the costs of moving to another nation, that's going to eat into profits. Uh, if it takes, you know, building new facilities, getting new workers, hiring a whole new staff in different areas. And that's not just the people working. That's, uh, you know, I'm sure Apple has a division for, for China that oversees the factories, or Nike or Adidas or Puma and all of the sweatshop uh, shoe places. They have not only the, the poor workers that have to put these things together, but the people above them, they're going to have to find all new people. And so you'd assume because of that loss of profit, the stock prices could go down. Now, I'm not saying it's guaranteed that they will. And as announcements come out, perhaps if they do it correct, you could actually see stock prices slightly increase or stay neutral. And this is because other people may have that same idea. And because of the speculation and the additional investment into those companies, you could actually see even a small tick up or the, the price stay neutral as more investor money floods into the public company. And the other thing is potentially, and I don't think, I'm not so sure that Trump would do this, but he could. And I'm sure there are some small voices within the U.S. Senate, probably not so much Congress, but you could see potentially a package deal for companies that move out of China. For instance, they could announce some sort of stimulus where the U.S. government would eat the, the cost of moving factories, of hiring your staff, of all the, the potentials that we laid out, which I don't think would be such a bad move. Again, it would weaken China, and it would essentially, you could classify it as military spending because you're subverting the Chinese economy. And essentially, by taking those stilts out, you're going to collapse the, potentially collapse the Chinese government. And that's really what we're hoping for, is to end the world's last bastion of communism. And now we could go into, and we have on other, for instance, the, uh, the Crime of the Century series that we did, the 75-episode series, has a huge section on why communism and Americanism are completely separate, incompatible, and you can't be a communist and an American. It's, it's, it's one or the other. So we've already explained that and, and why it's our duty as both Americans, voting American citizens and American politicians, to uphold those beliefs and to be opposed to communist governments. Again, this doesn't mean blowing them up and killing everybody in there. That's not what I'm saying. But but to do your best in order to 
make sure that you're not supporting these murderous, murderous regimes, even if it costs a little more out of pocket. And this, finally, we have a president that understands this. And again, as if we haven't made this show political enough yet, I don't think Joe Biden's the guy who would be able to do this. Now, Trump gets a lot of crap for a lot of stuff he says, and sometimes, you know what, sometimes he deserves it. I don't love everything that he tweets, but I'd much rather have him than somebody who's going to kowtow to the Chinese and sell out American principles and morals just in order to, to pretend like he's playing nice. And again, if there was a Democrat who was saying these things, I'd be not only very surprised and very pleased, but they would get covered by the media. Trump is doing this with no coverage, no political potential for political gain here uh, because the media would attack him no matter what. But it doesn't matter. He's doing the right thing. All right, in the last segment today, before we get out of here, I do want to also bring up hopefully an interesting financial lesson for you. It's going to be about the Monte Carlo theory and unfortunately how people are investing their money. We've talked a lot about potential today in the stock market for gains with uh, public, with, with larger companies. But if we're going to go ahead and make it even more of a, a micro episode, and I don't mean that in terms of length, but a, a microeconomics episode, we do need to understand the Monte Carlo theory and how it affects your qualified plan. Stay with us. Welcome back for our final segment here, and as promised, we are going to get to a financial lesson, one that I don't think many people are talking about, but it is very, very important when it comes to understanding how much of the big pile of money that we all try and, we're all trying to get, how much of that can we actually spend if we save traditionally? Again, this only applies for products that are heavily invested in the market. Uh, particularly in, um, it could be things from VULs and IULs up to 401ks, uh, IRAs, 403bs, simple SEP, SARSEP, profit sharing, brokerage accounts, anything invested in the market. It all comes back to what is called the Monte Carlo theory in terms of being able to spend your money. And this is a huge study that's done about once a year where they take all sorts of data plots, everything from life expectancy to uh, what the market did last year to what it did this year to what it's projected to do to what the GDP growth is to the national debt to the potential for tax increases to current tax increases to past tax increases in order to plot, of course, future potential tax increases, political unrest, all sorts of potentials. And it plots all of these, and it spits out this very complex graph, and it's reviewed by people who have doctorate levels uh, of education in economics. And this is basically used for financial advisors to be able to tell their clients how much money they can take out of their accounts to safely spend and not run out of money. I mean, that's one of the biggest fears of not only older Americans, but I think of most Americans. You know, while you're working and while you're young, it's do I have the right job to make enough money to where I can do the things that I want? That's a money fear. But here's another one as you get older. Have I saved enough to where if I get unhealthy, to where if I want to do something in retirement that I've never been able to do while I was working, can I go do that? Can I have fun with my grandkids? Can I 
get that shiny uh, red Corvette that I've always wanted? Can I have a decent quality of life, the same quality of life that I enjoyed while I was working? That's a huge fear for a lot of people, and it's really understated. Well, the Monte Carlo safe withdrawal theory, this essentially takes that fear and says it may be real or it may not. And it's starting to look maybe a little bit more real. So they've cut the percentage down to the percentage withdrawal from 4.5%, 3.7%, which is really what it was floating around for the past couple of years, and they cut that down to 2.7%. 2 percent. 7%. That's incredible. That's terrible. And I don't mean it's terrible in the sense that the math is wrong. I don't mean it's terrible in the sense that, that it should be changed. I mean, if you are one of the few lucky people to get a million dollars by the time you're 65 in a retirement account, you can spend $27,000 of that per year. If your spouse has a million dollars in their separate account, not, not together, not jointly, they can take out $27,000. Together, you'll have about $40,000. And you know what? Anybody who makes over $44,000 in retirement is considered too wealthy for Social Security. This is married, filing jointly. And up to 85% of that Social Security check that you get is counted as income and fully taxable. Can you imagine that? You work all your life. Maybe you pay off your mortgage. Maybe you pay it off early. You pay off your cars. You spend all your money the, the right way. You get to that million dollars and $27,000 is all you get out of it. Now, if you've gotten lucky to save a million dollars in retirement, that probably means that you had a decent paying job, something that pays a little bit more than $27,000 per year. And one of our objectives, I believe, and finance should be to help our clients reach a state in retirement in which they can enjoy the same quality of life and living that they enjoyed while they were working. And maybe some of them made $27,000 a year for their entire working lives, but probably not. We can say, good job, I got my fees, you made a million dollars, and all you get to spend is 27000 of that. Oh, fully taxable, by the way. Unless you're lucky enough to save it in a Roth. But again, if you got a million bucks in there, you probably have a decently paying job. Maybe you make too much for a Roth. And if you do, and you put it in a 401k that is tax-deferred, congratulations, you get to pay taxes in retirement. And even if you paid off your house, you know, let's say you did it the smart way. Let's say you get a 30-year mortgage and you draw it out and you use inflation to your advantage and you do all the things right to be able to pay off your house. You still got to pay property tax. What if the house you have, you bought when you were making 75 grand a year? That's probably a decent-sized house. Congrats, you get to pay property tax on that. And that's independent of what you're making. So that comes out of your check. Again, your Social Security is potentially and probably taxed. How can that be considered a success for us in the industry? Who tell you that's what we should that's what you should do with your money? 
Unless our objective was, wow, look at this big check you got. I'm uh, uh, sorry, statement wealth. Look, on this piece of paper, it says you have a million dollars. And you ask us, hey, can I spend it? And the answer is, nope. Too bad. But I got my fee, didn't I? Every single year, I got 1% of that. I got a nice car. I got a decent house. I'm still getting paid. You know what? I'm still getting paid on that million dollars. I did good, didn't I? Sorry. You only get 27 grand of that. And with taxes going up, all but guaranteed now with the national debt. Are we really sure this is what we should be telling our clients to do? But again, it comes back to why I believe that true freedom begins with financial freedom. Because to have the freedom to be able to do what you want, to have the freedom to be able to educate yourself in different areas, to have hobbies, to, to have fun, all of that comes down to whether or not you have disposable income. And it doesn't, it almost seems like it doesn't matter where your money is, but, uh, or what your money earns, but, but where it is. Can we agree on that? And if we could, shouldn't the goals of our plans change just a little? But this has been your financial topic for today. I hope this has been able to enlighten you on some of the issues that we're going to see come out of, unfortunately, this coronavirus. But this has been a long time coming. This is a real passion point for me in the industry. Something that I hope you'll take heed of and something that I'd be more than happy to help you with. But in the meantime, I'll see you on Monday. This has been The Kevin Prendeville Show.